0: Chapter Twenty Seven of The Romance of Piracy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Romance of Piracy by Edward Kebble Chatterton. Chapter Twenty Seven Cruising Among Chinese Pirates. Perhaps it will be a long time before the last of the Chinese pirates can assuredly be said to have gone. We know too well that, if a liner ever happens to get ashore in this neighborhood, she stands a grave risk of being looted and losing some of her people by murder. Things have indubitably altered for the better, but in the 60s and 70s, the coasts of China were infested with pirates, especially to the southward. At that time, when so many fine tea clippers and other sailing ships were passing and repassing full of such valuable cargoes, just prior to the time when the steamship was altering matters and the Suez Canal was about to be opened, there was what we may rightly call the grand period of Chinese piracy, and the following incidents were taken part in by Captain H.C. John, R.N., who was sent to keep these pests in check at this time. I wish to acknowledge my indebtedness to this officer's notes of these events, which were subsequently published. One day, whilst at anchor in his gunboat in Hong Kong harbor, there happened to be lying close by a fine large opium junk. She was armed with no less than a dozen 12 to 18 pounders and carried 45 men. During the afternoon, a number of passengers went aboard her and at dusk she got underway and cleared out. But as soon as she had reached the outer roads of Hong Kong, it fell a flat calm so that she was compelled to anchor about 9 p.m. About midnight, another large junk ran quietly alongside, and some of her crew jumped on board the opium craft. In a short space of time, the pirates' crew had seized both passengers and crew of the Hong Kong craft, and placed them below hatches the pirate then got under way and steered for the south side of hong kong on the way thither soon after daylight the unfortunate prisoners were one by one brought on deck by the pirates and first their hands were tied behind their backs then their feet were fastened together and they were then thrown overboard this treatment happened to all eighty-three of them with the exception of one, a boy, twelve years old. Him, the pirates spared, as he would be useful for making their tea and preparing their opium pipes. The pirates had taken this cargo of opium, for they knew how valuable it was and how easily sold it could be. They then made for their harbor, near to Macau, where they divided their spoil. Seven of them then took the boy with them, and proceeded to Macau, from where they went by steamer, bound for Hong Kong, a little farther on. During this steamer trip, the captain of the vessel noticed that the youngster was in great distress, and questioned him. In a few minutes, the captain realized that among his passengers were seven pirates, and determined to have them arrested. So, instead of taking his steamer as usual alongside the jetty at Hong Kong, He anchored in midstream and hailed the police boat to come out to him. The latter arrived, and then the hundred-odd Chinese passengers were lined up, and the boy was told to pick out the seven pirates. This he succeeded in doing, and the police took them ashore and locked them up. Now, it happened that the evening previous to this, someone else had arrived in Hong Kong and told a similar story, This was one of the eighty-three who had been thought dead. For this fellow, on finding himself in the water, had managed with a desperate struggle to release his hands by slipping through the lashing which bound them. And then, when he came up to the surface of the water, he succeeded in releasing his feet. He was thus able to swim to the nearest island, and from there made his way to Hong Kong in a fishing boat. It was a true but remarkable story, and the evidence of the boy coming on the top of this made the case against the seven pirates so clean that they were tried at Hong Kong, found guilty, and subsequently hanged. On another occasion, this British gunboat was cruising up the coast on the lookout for pirates when, on passing a small island, two fishermen paddled off in a sampan and pointed out a couple of small junks that were standing out to sea. Knowing that... As the wind was absent, there could be no escape, the gunboat steamed quietly on. Presently, about a dozen other smaller junks put off and opened fire on the two junks which had first been seen. But the gunboat, now running alongside the latter, captured them, took their crews on board prisoners, and then steamed in towards the town and let go anchor. The local mandarin now came off and expressed his thanks for having captured these two junks and twenty-one men. The incident had caused tremendous delight, as the craft had been giving a great deal of trouble recently, and no local junks had dared to come out. But what was surprising was that seven had not dared to tackle two larger than themselves, and yet it is said that the Chinese are no cowards. I mentioned just now that this was the time of the famous tea clippers, which used to make such marvelously fast voyages from China to London. Now, one day, whilst one of these clippers was on her way down the China Sea, she was becalmed. Shortly after, apparently bringing a faint breeze with them, appeared fifteen junks with their large sails. They opened fire on the helpless clipper from just within range, and everything looked as if the junk fleet would soon capture the clipper. But, as everyone knows, these clipper ships were famous for two things, the beauty of their hulls and the enormous mountain of canvas which they could set. Consequently, the combination of a fine-lined hull with a light and lofty sail spread could be used in a light air to give an advantage over the heavy junk with her equally heavy sails and as the breeze now strengthened a little, the clipper was able by the narrowest of margins to draw right away and escape. Captain St. John was now sent to capture these junks. After steaming through a lovely starlit night, the gunboat arrived with the dawn by the first of the islands, which fringed the coastline just to the west of the Canton River. It was then noticed that there was one junk well in shore and some miles ahead the weather was quite calm and her bat-winged sails were flapping uselessly in the ocean swell presently there were signs of activity observed and a boat was launched from the junk with a dozen men who pulled for the shore as quickly as human muscles could impel the craft but they were useless against the steam gunboat which managed to cut in and arrest Both boat and junk. The latter was then taken in tow by the gunboat, with twenty-four pirates on board, who were soon handed over to the governor of the nearest province. So that put an end to their activities for the present. And a curious thing was noticed when the junk was being examined. It was seen that the sails of the craft had holes in them, and the shape of these suggested that they had been made as the result of somebody's cannonade. Later on, it was learned that this was not originally a pirate junk, but a trader, which had the bad luck to be captured by Chinese pirates three months previously after killing the crew. Those in the gunboat remembered, as they were approaching this junk, that the pirates were busily heaving bags of something overboard as fast as they could. You may imagine with what emotions they discovered later that these were bags of dollars. The sum of four thousand pounds had been found on board the junk when the pirates took her, and although they had done their best to throw as much overboard as they could, rather than see it fall into the hands of the British ship, there still remained about two thousand pounds of this amount when the gunboat took her in tow. The prisoners were sent on to Canton and executed for their piracy, though seven were allowed to escape before Canton was reached. In the year 1875, an English brigantine was sailing to the northward, past the Chinese coast, when, about a hundred miles from Hong Kong, they were attacked by pirates who promptly killed the captain and ship's boy. The rest of the crew went aloft and remained on the top until the pirates below had finished ransacking the ship. After a terrible suspense, wondering who was to die next, The crew watched the Chinamen leave the ship and return to their junk. So the Englishmen came down from their lofty perch to the deck, and without further excitement, they navigated their craft into port and gave information against the pirates. But it was not always an easy matter to locate these cunning creatures, who were as artful as they were cruel. But the following incident shows how cleverly the English Navy could grapple with a difficult problem. In some respects, the story is a kind of nautical detective tale and is well worth relating. It happened one day that while the gunboat was coaling, information was brought to Captain St. John that a large fishing junk belonging to Hong Kong with her owner and his Chinese family on board had been attacked by pirates whilst the innocent vessel had been engaged in her lawful fishing at sea. The owner had been sent adrift in a sampan, his junk taken from him together with his three daughters. He was ordered to make his way as best he could to the shore and there collect five hundred dollars from his friends if he wished to obtain his daughter's release. He was advised not to be too long about it, as otherwise the girls would be put to death. The harassed Chinaman had got to land and at length came aboard the British gunboat. So, after the latter had finished coaling, she got under way at dusk and made good progress towards the cluster of islands about 30 miles away from Hong Kong, and now began a series of interesting events based on deductive and inductive reasoning to outwit oriental cunning. Arrived at this island cluster, the commander well knew that he was in the very center of the favorite resort of pirates. The channel ran between the islands, and on either side were numerous little coves where the junks could easily withdraw, and yet as easily get away again. Having reached this district before dawn, just as the darkness was sweeping away, there was seen a junk moving cautiously in the shadows of the cliff towards the farther entrance. This was certainly suspicious, so the gunboat stood in, bided her time, and presently caught the junk, although the latter's crew had escaped to the shore. It was a great piece of luck to have lighted upon this craft in such a manner, for the Chinamen, whom the gunboat had brought with her, immediately recognized her, as the very junk which had run off with his daughters. The gunboat's voyage was now becoming exciting, and a little farther on, she was passing another cove when another junk hove in sight. The gunboat went in pursuit, but the Chinamen, nervous for their lives, ran the junk ashore, and her crew of twelve made off into the bushes. After some little effort, the junk was relaunched from her sandy bed, and got afloat again, and you may judge of the joy of the Chinaman on the gunboat when he realized that this was his own junk in which he was fishing when the pirates had come to attack him. So she also was now taken in tow. So far, so good. Both junks had been found and taken in tow by the gunboat, but even if the pirates were not likely to be captured, yet the fishermen's daughters had still to be found. Even the guns which had been taken by the pirates from the fishing craft were found, after a little searching, buried in the sand quite close to the junk. So the gunboat proceeded along till she arrived at the head of a bay, where lay a town almost concealed by a woody point. And here, the British craft let go anchor, whilst her commander played very cleverly the part of detective he began by bluntly demanding the deliverance of the three girls. This was met with blank astonishment. The townspeople pretended with typical oriental manner that they knew nothing about the girls. They were completely innocent of all knowledge concerning them. This fervent assurance might possibly have convinced some Europeans, but Captain St. John was far too experienced in the ways of the crafty Chinese, to believe a word they said. He had every reason to suppose that the girls were in this town, near which he had found the two junks, and he was determined to obtain the object of his mission. Therefore, having been met with this protestation of innocence, he insisted on the three headmen of the village being sent on board the gunboat. They came in their silk robes and, accompanied by a couple of blue jackets, "'proceeded to the Man of War. "'Preparations were now made on the gunboat's deck "'for hanging the three Chinamen. "'A good deal of ostentatious activity "'was spent in passing a rope from each masthead "'and tying knots, arranging nooses suitable "'for the heads of these three men. "'The intention of the commander "'was to frighten the Chinamen into submission, "'for he was convinced they were lying.' For a time, these efforts had not the desired effect, and one at least of these three Orientals even laughed satirically at the arrangements. But when the nooses of rope were put over the head of each, the effect was magical. So soon as the rope touched their yellow skin, their manner was altered, and their memories suddenly awoke from their untruthful stupor. Yes, the Chinamen now recollected that the girls were indeed in the village, and if only the commander would spare the lives of these three headmen, the girls should be returned in safety. So directions were sent to the village, and before long the girls appeared on the beach, escorted by crowds. The three headmen were then exchanged for the three girls, and the gunboat once more got under way. THE SHIP'S COMPANY MADE THEM AS COMFORTABLE AS POSSIBLE, WRAPPING THEM UP IN A SAIL FOR THE NIGHT, AND FEEDING THEM WITH ALL THE TEA AND JAM WHICH THEIR ORIENTAL PALATES DELIGHTED IN. TO THE GREAT JOY OF THEIR FATHER, THEY WERE BROUGHT SAFELY BACK TO HONG KONG, AND THE INCIDENT, THANKS TO CAPTAIN St. JOHN'S CLEVER stratagem AND DETERMINATION, HAD BEEN BROUGHT TO A HAPPY ISSUE the part which the British Navy has played in Chinese waters alone in putting down piracy has been considerable. Sometimes the efforts have had to be made against superior numbers, and only British pluck and cleverness could have brought about the results which followed. Such an occasion occurred when this same gunboat once rounded a headland in these seas, and after opening up the channel. Found no fewer than fifteen junks drawn up in line in such a manner as to command the center of the channel with their guns. The navigation hereabouts was tricky, especially for a vessel drawing as much water as the gunboat. But she was taken full speed through the soft mud on to the north side, so that she kept all the junks end on and not broadside. This somewhat surprised the junks. Who were still more amazed when the gunboat, with her guns out and ready loaded, dashed into the middle of them before ever a shot had been fired by either side. Indeed, so terrified were these Chinamen that they jumped overboard and swam from their craft to the shore, where they presently manned their land batteries. But before they had fired, the gunboat had come to anchor and sent a shot against them. This had the salutary effect of clearing the Chinamen from their new stronghold. Then the English officer followed this up by landing the whole of his men, with the exception of three, plus the Chinese portion of his crew. He came ashore with his men some little distance below the position the Chinese pirates had taken up, as the ground was less unsuitable. His force consisted only of twenty blue jackets and marines, all told. The enemy amounted to three hundred or five hundred. Forming in single file, the English advanced towards the pirates, but a minute later, the enemy hesitated and then fled for their lives. Although the difference in the strength of the two forces was so great, yet the result of the encounter was instant and unmistakable. All that the English had now to do was to walk into the battery from behind and burn the village. This, together with the blowing up of three junks, was readily accomplished. So the Englishmen returned aboard their gunboat, and just then they espied a whole fleet of junks steering into the creek. The gunboat's Chinese interpreter assured himself that these were pirates, so another engagement was imminent but in a short time it was found that they were the opposite of pirates. In fact, these junks belonged to a certain Mandarin who assured the gunboat's commander that he would not have dared to have come into the Channel had he not seen the British gunboat there lying. For the Mandarin had been living in terror of these corsairs. However, the gunboat was in a hurry and had no more time to waste over these pirates, so handing over the junks to the Mandarin and leaving the devastated town in the latter's charge, the man-of-war got up her anchor and made for Macau. After leaving Macau, the gunboat steamed some miles to the west and then turned sharply to the right, thus approaching the mainland, which was separated from the chain of islands by a dozen miles of shallow, muddy water. As she was proceeding, the gunboat grounded— the time being about low water and no further advance could be made. Heavy clouds were coming up, and presently, dirty weather set in. The water became lashed into a nasty short sea, and the wind increased in violence. At this moment, from amidst the heavy driving rain, there emerged a junk, tearing before the breeze with her great sails boomed out. Here was a stroke of ill luck to have this pirate coming out just as the gunboat was immovable and unable to work her guns freely. However, the best had to be made of a bad job. So, a big shot was pitched across the bows of the hurrying junk, which she ignored. In another minute, the big gun would not be able to bear on her, and she would have dashed past and would have been able to rake with her guns the helpless gunboat, stranded in the mud. It was now or never, and the order to fire into her had just been given, but before the trigger had been pulled, down came the great sail of the junk, and in a very few minutes she had rounded to and anchored close to the man-of-war. Just then, too, the tide had risen a little, so that the gunboat was able to float off and dropped astern into deeper water. The junk was then boarded and found to contain 43 men. These, in small parties, were now sent aboard the gunboat and secured for the night. The next day, the gunboat and her junk arrived at the nearest Mandarin station, where both junk and crew were handed over. She was found to be a pirate, very heavily armed, and was the identical craft against which the gunboat had been sent out. With her eight big cannon, she was capable of doing any damage she liked against a merchant ship. In fact, she was so big a craft that she made the gunboat look quite small when alongside her. The 60s and 70s, which have been selected for our narrative to afford characteristic episodes of Chinese piracy, were the very climax of the sea robberies by which those waters became so notorious. Hong Kong itself was a veritable hotbed of piracy. Here resided the headmen of the pirate gangs, and, in this selfsame harbor, pirate junks had the audacity and impudence to anchor even close to a British gunboat whose mission it was to exterminate this class of nuisance a favorite practice was for a pirate to wait in harbor till he saw another merchant junk getting underway bound for a coasting voyage. The pirate would then get his anchor up also and follow the other junk round the first headland when he would attack her, board her, and rob her with or without murder as suited his convenience. But this evil practice was largely overcome by the introduction of a system of compulsory registration, which caused the junks to be numbered. And, additional to this, the Chinamen were prevented from entering Hong Kong without a passport. And let us now close this story of pirates with the narrative of an incident which showed yet again that the white man was more than a match for the cunning and often cowardly Mongolian. Information had been received from some fishermen that three large junks were anchored in a snug bay six miles away. The gunboat's commander was well aware that the pirates scented his coming, and they did not fail to realize that the exceedingly narrow and shallow entrance was quite unsuitable for the gunboat. However, there were other means for attaining the same object, and this is what happened. The man-of-war was taken as near as she could safely float to the rocky shore, Then, Captain St. John, with seven men, quietly left his ship and rowed ashore, the gunboat having orders now to steam on and appear off the entrance to the bay as close as practicable and to send another boat to the assistance of the eight when the gunboat should reach her position. Captain St. John and his seven men had barely 300 yards of bushes and grass to traverse before the low ridge overlooking the bay was reached. Then it was found that they were within a hundred yards of the spot where the junks lay below them. These craft were clearly aground in the middle of the bay and broadside on to the entrance. Two of them were very fine vessels, mounting ten guns, though the third was smaller. There were about twenty men in each, and, at any rate, the enemy numbered about ten to one of the naval men. The Chinese had expected that the English would row round the point, and so the wily Orientals had trained their guns ready-loaded straight for the entrance, and it had never occurred to them that their enemy would make an overland attack. Now, lying hauled out of the water on the beach in front of the houses was a sampan, and when the party of seven got down to the beach, three of them launched this sampan and pushed off to the junks while the rest were on the beach. These tactics so surprised the Chinamen that they jumped and tumbled into their boats alongside the junks, and some of them fell spluttering into the water. One of the boats from the gunboat now came on to assist, and the pirate craft were quickly taken possession of. The junks were destroyed, some of the pirates were killed, while the rest of them fled into the bushes. Thus, with a little force and much sound judgment and daring, another nest of pirates had been got rid of to the further benefit of mankind. And so we bring our story of the rise and growth of piracy to an end. Within the number of pages here afforded, It has been impossible to do more than indicate both the historic outline of the subject and to illustrate this with real, actual events of the most interesting character. A complete history of piracy will never be written. Such a task would be impossible, for the reason that all records of many of the most notorious pirates perished with themselves. In the lives of even those of whom we have certain knowledge— there are gaps about which history is silent. Perhaps those were the periods when they were enjoying their ill-gotten gains on land. Perhaps, in those times, they were engaged in still more daring sorts of piracy. We cannot tell. But one thing I believe to be certain, and, in this, any reader who has perused this volume will, I trust, agree with me, However charming and romantic a story the novelist may weave for us concerning these bold sea-robbers and pillagers, yet it is not necessary to overstep the limits of actual occurrence in order to demonstrate at once the daring, the ingenuity, and the undoubtedly clever seamanship of these lawless wanderers and enemies of the human race. End of chapter 27 Recording by Linda Johnson. End of The Romance of Piracy by Edward Kebble Chatterton.